Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! The power of believing in someone else, of seeing someone else, um, and believing them and, and sharing that with them in some way is such an amazing and kind of necessary ministry. And I actually think it, the, the reason why we want to do that is because it's a huge part that, that undergirds all that we read about in Jesus and Jesus' ministry. That Jesus' ministry in calling the disciples and all the people he interacts with is fundamentally a seeing and believing in these people, a calling and inviting them. And what becomes really clear is, is you look through all the stories of Jesus and not because he believed exclusively in them, but because his belief in people was so great that this was something to do. So how I wanted to do this, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I would love if you would just share the name of the person who saw and believed you. And I know that like, we won't all know the names of these people, but I'd just love to hear who, what was the name of the person that saw and believed you from a young age? Donna, Donna thank you. <coughs> Sorry. Greta and Bill, thank you. Linda Bonham. Anyone else? Jan. Jan. I feel like we're one short of being complete, and I don't know why. (laughs) Mr. Boyd. Mr. Boyd. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, It's incredible to reflect on on those moments and those times and who those people were. And this is what I love, is to consider what would it look like for you to be that kind of person? Because it's free. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't cost anything to see and to know someone and to let them know that you see and you believe something in them. And ultimately, is if this is in fact the thing that Jesus is doing and, and it undergirds all of Jesus' ministry, then we see that Jesus is the face of God, that this is God's relationship to us. Not one that requires our belief in God, but one that God is saying, I see and believe in you. I made you, I know you, and let's see what that looks like. And I I wanted to make sure, specifically this Sunday, is kind of going into our message. We're in uh, this series where we're going through the Gospel of Mark. I thought it was specifically important this Sunday to start this message with this. Here's why. When you're going through the life of Jesus, and in Mark you start going into the second half of the life of Jesus, Jesus is so consistently going at oppressive systems of power and addressing those. And he's so obviously dealing with his closest followers who don't understand this new way that he's being, that just going through these stories can be incredibly deflating and a little defeating. It's like, yeah, I went to church today, we sang some Christmas songs, and then I learned that most systems we're a part of are oppressive and marginalized people, And uh, most people don't get it. And then, uh, you know, slow road to death. So it's a real upper. Uh, Don't know why I didn't grab brunch this morning. The undergirding of all of this isn't that God has come to condemn. The undergirding of all of it is that Jesus isn't saying these things and addressing these systems because he believes that we're awful. uh, Because that would be going, that would be the Noah story. We, We just need to start over. This is a different narrative. 
This is a narrative of deep belief, and Jesus is saying to it, this to us because he believes in our ability to change the narrative, to transform the systems, to be more equitable, to see and value more people. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark 10. And specifically, as we look in Mark 10, we're going to hit on a passage right away that is uncomfortable. Um, and, and for two big reasons. One, it's dealing with divorce, something that has impacted many of us. And two, it's a passage that has been used against the LGBTQ plus community uh, for many, many years. And so I want to acknowledge that as we go into it, that you might feel some resistance or stress or all of those things in your body, and that's okay. Notice where you feel it. Notice how you carry it when you, you kind of hear these words. And then we're going to talk through how does this fit into the larger narrative of Jesus. So we're in Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, that is fantastic. Um, if not, we'll have the words right up here. So Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across, from, and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They replied, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Um, it, was, it was probably like three or four months ago, um, on our website, we have an ability to kind of contact a pastor or coffee with a pastor. And I got an email where we weren't able to connect in person, uh, but it felt more urgent, so we talked on the phone. And it was a man who grew up in the church, in the Christian church, and had like knew the Bible inside and out. And uh, through a lot of different circumstances early in his life, he had gotten a divorce. Years later, he had become remarried and was remarried. And he talked about the joy in his relationship that he was currently in and the beauty and the ways in which they, they saw and communicated that was deeply healing to himself. And yet, he couldn't sleep at night because he was haunted by this verse that he was committing adultery. He was like, I know the scripture, I know this thing, so I know that I'm living in sin, even though this good and beautiful relationship I'm a part of, like I just, I don't know that I can trust it. And the question is, if, if we kind of look at the trajectory of the story of Jesus, how is, is that a place where we're ending? How is that a conclusion that we're drawing from this? Just as a reminder, kind of leading up to this, Jesus has, has done a lot of healing ministry, but Jesus has predominantly been looking at the, the Pharisees and the Jewish religious system that is used to kind of hold on to power for some and to keep others away. And that this power and equity isn't just for any kind of system, but specifically within a religious context and a religious system. That your separation uh, isn't just from your community, while it certainly means that, but it's also from God. 
And so for Jesus to, to be uh, talking to the Pharisees, and we looked at the way where they're like, hey, your disciples don't wash their hands as is custom. Why do you do that? And Jesus is like, why are you so interested in these parts of the law? But you're not interested in all the ways that this injustice happens in other ways. And he brought up the, the way that money or resources that are dedicated from elders to the church are no longer used for people. It was a form of elder abuse that was happening. So how could we go through all of these different, and then we end with a divorce passage? And part of me thinks that this is a a somewhat new way where we receive and know truth culturally. Uh, This is 100% dating myself, and I'm okay with that. How many of you grew up with Encyclopedia Britannica? Yeah, I like just Googled it and saw these images and immediately was like, oh, I know that set. Like, I know that thing. Because we had it in this one bookshelf in our house, and that's where you would go to look at just bizarre and interesting stuff. You just kind of flip through. And then older, as you got older, you would look up information. If there was something you were unsure of, an event, um, words, history, this is where you would kind of go and check it. And, and more recently now, if you're hanging out with a group of friends and you can't figure out, like, wait, who is the actor there? Or what's that song? What do you do? You Google it. It's full on a verb. It's moved from noun to verb in our culture because it's what you do to gain information. Now, for those systems to work, what do you have to do? You word search. I have to search a word and I plug it in And the idea is if I put the right word, or going back to Encyclopedia Britannica days, if I search the right word, then I will find the truth about that thing, right? And if this is the way we receive truth, wouldn't it make sense that that's the more recent lens in finding information and truth that we have put back on the Bible? So if you want to know what the Bible says about divorce, what do you do? You go to the back of the Bible, you find the word divorce, and then you look it up. Here we go. This is what the Bible says about divorce. But that presupposes that Jesus, who is addressing oppressive systems and talking about the way that religion has been harming people, not helping them, is letting them know, I'm your leader, and I am going to be the Messiah who's going to bring this beautiful new way of living back to the Jewish people, but that's not going to come through military might or power. That's going to come through death and through suffering. That Jesus took a break from all of that to be like, hey, you guys are probably going to wrestle with divorce in a world, so let's just get this down in the books real quick. Let's look at just kind of the systems and structures, especially within the Jewish worldview, is that the rabbis and the teachers would be at the top of the pyramid. And then men, and not just educated men, but all of them. Men are number two. And then women, and then slaves, and then children. And this wasn't like, I'm not saying, you know, no one ever wrote it down and talked about it. This is kind of a general understanding in the first century. No, very explicit. This was the power hierarchy. So when it came to issues of divorce, they weren't checking irreconcilable differences on a box. It was men who had all the power deciding, I don't want to be married anymore. And within this religious system, I have the ability, thanks to the the laws of Moses, to go in and just make it so. And no one can do anything about it. Jesus' condemnation of divorce isn't about this idea that two people, once they're married, need to be married forever. He's addressing the system 
that is being used to hold power over one group over another. And what happens over and over and over again in the Bible is that we have this question that's brought to Jesus. And the way that I would frame this question to Jesus and the way that we view it today is, hey, Jesus, are you pro-marriage or pro-divorce? Right? Because if we have different ideas, we just put pro in front of both words and then we pose it to people like that. And Jesus never would have taken that bait because in every example in the story, Jesus never takes that bait. He's not saying, I'm not interested in this conversation. What he's saying is you're not asking the right questions about this conversation. What Jesus is interested in is healthy relationships. And for Jesus, healthy relationships have to be equitable. There has to be equality in a relationship for it to function. That huge and massive power differentiations in relationships usually ends in harm. And especially within a marriage, that for one person just to be able to decide what they want to do is not justice. And it's ultimately not leaning into this way, this kingdom of God that Jesus keeps talking about, this new way of seeing and relating to each other. And if you look at this passage on divorce with, through that lens, it's perfectly in line with everything Jesus said before and everything Jesus will say afterwards. If you're, you view it and say, no, Jesus is saying once you get married, that's kind of it. You're in a relationship forever. Think of all the things that Jesus Christ, representative of the God of the universe, would have to excuse within human relationships to make that so. Abuse, totally fine. You can do it because being married is the highest value. It's the greatest thing to do. We don't see this in the life and ministry of Jesus at all. So when it comes to the Bible, and when people say the Bible says, I usually think what they mean is, my Google search of the Bible says. If I pull up this word, this is what it tells me about this thing, but it's devoid of context, and it's devoid of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, which absolutely has to be considered if you're going to interpret any of these passages. And even considering all of those things, what we have to look for is what is the trajectory of these decisions? Not what does this individual decision mean? Meaning, are these decisions leading us on an upward path of the peaceful thriving of all people, or is it taking us away from that? Or are we just re-weaponizing uh, spiritual words and phrases? Are we re-weaponizing religion, which is what Jesus was coming to undo, and we just re-weaponize it to harm and exclude people? This isn't the heart of Jesus so do I think there's one clear way of interpreting this? Yes, we always get divorced. No, we never get divorced. No. If Jesus is for healthy relationships, then these are deeply relational conversations. And they require communities of people to be involved and to speak into that and to wrestle with it and sit with it and to say, what is God's best in this situation? What's the best that we can do in this situation? Is that... Make some sense? Are we on board a little bit? Okay. There's a number of other things that happen, and then I want to get to the last story in this. So let's kind of quickly go through them. We just talked about the hierarchy, kind of religious spiritual leaders, men, women, slaves, children. The next thing that comes after this, which makes me think that, again, Jesus is looking at power and the way we see one another, is a story about Jesus and children. Where the children come to Jesus, and the disciples are like, get out of here, kids. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. 
If you want to come into this kingdom, you need to be like this child. And part of what's beautiful, and again, what falls in line with the other story we're going to look at within the same chapter, is Jesus is flipping upside down the power hierarchy. You want to come into this. He wasn't saying, be a child, be infantile. And there's lots of ways of understanding it. I mean, shoot, we made a whole event based on this story and talking about the ways in which we can see what Jesus is inviting to and how to be like a child. But one of the biggest things to pull from this is that Jesus is reversing the hierarchy. If you think you're going to discover who God is at the top of the hierarchical pyramid, you're probably going to miss it. Because God's movement and actions are here on the people on the margins. That's where we see God moving and where we see God working. And to understand that is to step into that place, which would be a continuation when he's talking about divorce and how we don't see certain people. The next places that he goes is that a rich young ruler comes. So now we jumped way back up to the top of the pyramid. A man with lots and lots of wealth, he comes to Jesus. And he says, I've done all the things. And he's like, all the things? He's like, all the things. And Jesus is like, great. One last thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come on down, Bob Barker style. And I want you to picture this, because it is what it's happening. It is, rich young ruler, come on down. And the camera's going wild, and people are looking around, and there's just one guy walking slowly out the back of the room. He's like, no, 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 no. Because he's invited into this thing, but he knows that the cost of following Jesus is too high. It's too high. And where I think this it falls exactly in line with everything Jesus is saying, what Jesus is talking about, not a road of triumph, but a road of suffering, is that some people are going to have to give up a lot to participate in the mutual thriving of all people. The call is actually greater on those who have a lot of wealth and have a lot of power and have a lot of prestige. You have to give that up so that others can have it so that others can be a part of the same thriving of all people. And what is so telling in this passage is when Jesus says this, people aren't cheering. You would think that the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized people would look, see this, and be like, yes, got him. That was amazing, Jesus. No one says no to that guy, but you just did. Instead, what happens? They go, oh, no. I thought that's how I was going to come into this kingdom. If he's not in, who could possibly be in? He's done all the things and has incredible wealth. The prosperity gospel didn't start in Texas. It is alive and well in this passage. This understanding that this is how you can determine God's blessing, and it wrecks this community. They don't know what to do with that. And isn't that interesting? that even people who are being actively harmed by a system will still protect the system because at least they know the rules of it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is inviting them to see, no, that is not the way. And I love the statement where Jesus says, when they're like, wait, really he can't get in? He's like, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I may have already shared this, but I love this story too much, so I will again. In the Middle Ages, when again, we had a lot of wealth and Christianity just hanging out, running through the park together, having lots of fun, 
they told this story that they're like, hey, we know that around the temple where Jesus was heading in Jerusalem, there was actually this needle gate. And the needle gate was half of the height of any of the other gates. So to get a camel through, they had to kneel. It had to be like a humble posture to get in. And do you know what our archaeological data tells us? It doesn't exist. It's not true. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He was like, nope, give it up. But people with wealth go, oh, there's loopholes, right? Like tax breaks? Because that's kind of how I hold on to my money now. There's like that thing, but in the Bible, right? No, not what Jesus is saying. He just wasn't being cute or unclear or hiding something. It was obvious, and yet today we still can't sit with that. That's still too challenging. It might be more challenging today than it was back then. So then after this, okay, divorce. Do we see how women do not have a saying and vote in this and that this is not a just practice? You want to come into the kingdom, be like a child. The person at the top of the pyramid comes and he's like, yeah, absolutely you're invited. This is what it costs. And they say, no, thank you. Then again, Jesus says his third death prediction. And this is one thing that I think contextually is important. So far, Jesus and the ministry has been happening kind of up in the hinterlands of the Middle East. And they're moving around. They're talking to lots of people. And I want you to feel, as in a disciple, there's a way that you're hearing these radical teachings of Jesus away from the centers of power that are probably more palatable. You're like, wow, these are some radical ideas. All right, I'm on board with it. But as Jesus is walking directly towards Jerusalem, I imagine that they're feeling it in their gut strongly like, shut up, stop saying these things. It's fine out there, but not here. You know what I mean? Like there's one way that we like to talk big and bold in someone's kitchen or at a bar, but then like when you go to the state capitol, you're like, hey, keep it quiet. Or when you go to the Portland courthouse, you're like, no, 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 don't make a scene here. This is the actual tension that Jesus is building by not slowing down what he's saying, but ramping it up as he is walking closer to Jerusalem. Okay, are we capturing a picture here? Because that is all necessary to understand how ridiculous this next section is. Let's look at Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask, which is a great way to frame a question. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. (laughs) This is after his third death prediction. And they said left and right at glory. But watch, watch this. Watch how Jesus responds. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they become indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
So what's fascinating about this is Jesus is keep on setting up this paradigm of that we're doing an upside-down kingdom. It's coming from another direction. It's not top-down. It's just coming from the bottom. And this is where God is, and this is where God is working. But their minds are still locked in the top of the hierarchical pyramid. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. there'll be some suffering. But eventually we get there, right? You know what's interesting about the left and the right of Jesus when he comes into power? Do you know that as we read through the rest of the story, there are two people that show up there? That the two thieves that Jesus is crucified with, they get the left and the right. They're there. Not through any great thing they do, but through their death by the Roman state. What Jesus is pointing to is that you want to hold on to power. And what I love about this is Jesus asks them a question. Jesus doesn't do what I know I would have done. As I read through these, I think about all the time that I have been in the car, and I'm like, hey, buddy, can you stop touching your brother? Because that's always how it starts. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey, pal. Come on over here, you little knucklehead. Hey, do me a quick fave. Stop touching your brother. And then it's like, hey, touching means literally any kind of contact with your brother. If you could knock that off, that'd be super swell. Hey, could you, no, you need to stop now. You need to, I will get out of this car. <laughs> I have never spanked you, but it might start today. Do you understand me? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've stood in front of my kids with their tablet, with all their little apps jiggling. I can press it right now. I will delete all of them. And yet, do you see how this is not Jesus' relationship with his disciples? Excusing for a second the kind of parent-child dynamic, but Jesus' frustration isn't one that is elevating and rising, and he doesn't ultimately say, it is time to start over with a new group. Like, I just need a new 12. We had a good run, but like, you just aren't getting it. And maybe like there'll be another rabbi, or maybe like the next generation you'll catch on to this, but this is just not your thing. Listen to how Jesus says, can you drink from the cup and be baptized? And when they go, yeah, oh, totally. He doesn't say, no, wrong answer. What does he say? Yep, more than you know. More than you know. Can you hear the patience and grace in that? More than you know. Yeah, you're going to get it. And I'm sorry for the ways in which you're going to have to walk through and get it. Because the gap between your expectations and the reality of the path you're walking, they're really, really great right now. And that's going to be hard and really, really painful. And yet, Jesus keeps walking with them. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is here to keep walking with us when we don't get it. And what Jesus is inviting to us to in doing it this way is inviting us to see the ways that we don't get it. We don't have to go through life and to keep pretending that we do understand all of this and what it looks like. And we have mastered this idea of the new kingdom or we understand that, no, actually Jesus really was about this and not this. And all of our certainty about the things that Jesus is saying and not the ways that he isn't saying things and we can sit with it and say, no, I probably still don't get it. I know I don't get all of it. And I definitely know I'm not living in all of it because that 
is the way that Jesus is inviting us to grow. That is the way that Jesus is inviting us along the path, is with patience and with grace. It's miraculous with patience and grace. That's why I think a deep curiosity towards what are the words of Jesus and who is Jesus Christ is so helpful for our transformation. Certainty that we get it works against actually being able to get it. Because there's always new revelations. There's always new movements. There's always new way that this kingdom has to transform and call us back into our full identity of who we are created to be. There's always more of that happening. And the road for that through Jesus is with patience and grace. We keep coming. Keep coming. And what I love about this is that when it gets as hard as Jesus predicts, who is there? Jesus shows up. He's back in the room with them. And he doesn't say what I know I would have said. I told you. So many times I told you. Look at you now, scared and hiding out in here, afraid for your lives. And some of you look surprised. Jesus doesn't do that. He's just back with them. What a beautiful guide for our relationships with one another. What a beautiful guide to understanding our relationship with this God. Are we being called to really difficult ways of engaging in this world? Yes, And if we ever stop feeling that, I don't know that we're walking the path. But the road forward is for the God who sees us and believes in us. He says, try again. Keep going. There's something more to be found here. There's something more to be strived after. My hope isn't that you would hear this and say, huh, I think that that strikes me as something that is true that you're saying. That does seem pretty consistent with the character of Jesus. My prayer is that this would be something that you would feel and know deep within your being. And that doesn't come from what I'm saying. This comes from the very nature of God who is always inviting and is always with us and is never excluding and cutting off and shaming. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that God, your patience And grace is such that it doesn't eliminate the hard and challenging messages. It doesn't take away the path of suffering that is before us even today. The systems that we need to address, the parts of ourselves that we have to sit with. But God, it calls us forward with a voice that loves us, and knows us as encouraged by our steps forward. God, I pray that we would feel safe to sit with the parts of ourselves that don't know. God, we would call those parts of ourselves to the surface. God, knowing that they don't threaten our relationship with you. That you've been with us before, you are with us now, and you will be with us going forward. God, may we be a part of this movement. May we be a part of your kingdom on this earth. God, may that be through receiving your patience and grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.